Okay, so we're going to move on to this. Um, this next section is quite interesting and it's about bond servants or in some translations, your translation will probably say slave. The ESV were trying to be nice and they translated it as bond servants. Right? And there's a re- partial reason for that that you see, you'll see as we go through it. But he's talking about bond servants in relationship to their masters. Now remember, first he speaks to the, the who he's speaking to in the submissive person, wives, then husbands, children will be parents, and now bond servants will be masters. And he says in verse 5 through 9, so let's go there and we'll, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So in verse 5 he says, bond servants, or I'm pretty sure most of your translations will say slave. Am I right? Yeah? Okay. So slaves, bond servants, whatever, obey your earthly masters, he says, and with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Now I'm going to try and cover a little bit of understanding of this passage in you by talking about the subject of slavery. Okay, so this is, I'm going to try and make this passage come alive to you, but first I want you to understand the background of the biblical times that we're presented with here. Paul in his first address speaks to husbands and wives, then children, which now speaks to the third part of the household, bond servants and masters. Bond servants were slaves. And in that particular day, a slave was just normal to have one around. It was just normal. For instance, slaves were around long before the time of the Apostle Paul. In fact, in the Old Testament, we see several references to slavery being mentioned. They were included in all the regulations under the Mosaic Law. It was known in ancient Greek times that a person who became a slave lost half of their own worth. Imagine that. You went to work for something and said, now you've lost half of who you are. Half of your value's gone because you're now working for somebody. Wow. They lost half of their own worth. Now there were many reasons someone would become a slave, such as debt. They owed someone someone, so they became a slave to pay it off. Others were captives of war. Like if David went out and killed the Amalekites and there was people left over and they made them slaves. They served them. And uh, they were captives of war. While some viewed slaves as possessions, like a piece of property, Roman law saw them treated as actual people. In other writings, slaves were treated as if they had no thought and were seen as stupid people who were unable to look after themselves. So slavery, in a way, was a good thing for those types of people. In Greek law, there were four distinctions between a free person and a slave. The difference between someone who was free and someone who was a slave, there's four distinctions. A free persons, free persons were their own representatives in all legal matters. 
where his slaves were represented by their owners or someone empowered by their owner. They couldn't speak for themselves. A free person, they were not subject to being seized like that of property, whereas a slave could be seized and seized and arrested by anyone. Free persons could earn a living as they desired, whereas a slave did what their masters ordered them to do. A free person could choose where they wanted to live, whereas slaves had to live with their owners, where their owners placed them. This type of slave, slavery sounds humiliating and degrading, yet it was nothing like the slavery we hear of in history, such as that of the colonies or the blacks or the black people and stuff. It was one, here's one reason why colour was not a deciding factor in biblical slavery. They would come from various nations and, look, as, and likely looked exactly like a free person did. A free person was able to sell themselves into slavery knowing that they could regain their freedom at a later date. That was also another reason why it was different. In fact, there's even notice of a king's son selling himself into slavery so that he could learn a particular skill. But the contract was agreed that after he'd learned that he would come out again. They would do this under an agreed contract, oftentimes because the life, their life at that point was, it was easier to be a slave than a free person. Or maybe it was to gain a special skill to enhance status. For example, under a contract like this, they would receive food, clothes, shelter and support when they were sick. A lot of these things they didn't have when they were a free person because they were maybe poor. But they got all that if they, if they signed a contract for slavery. A job, they could get a job they could undertake would be like that of a chief accountant within a household. If you were in a wealthy household, you could, what, you ought to become the chief accountant. And in large households, they could become highly trained, furthering their future job potential. Some slaves would take on the roles as tutor to the master's children in morals and manners, and some became professors in higher education, and others went on to become physicians. What is also unlike colonial slavery was that slaves could eventually become a free person and a Roman citizen. There was three conditions, however. The slave had to have been over 30 years of age. The slave had to have held, had been held by a Roman citizen. And he, or he had to have been freed by one of three requirements. They were a fictitious claim. Like, for instance, if you had a friend that was a slave and had been a slave for a while, I could come along usually and say, this person was a free person, you've illegally made them a slave. And if the master didn't contend it or contest it and want to go to court over it, then he would let the person go and they'd become free. It's called a fictitious claim. The second one was the master's consent, they would, where they would allow the slave to be enrolled as a Roman citizen, and therefore upon reaching the age of 30, they automatically became a free person. And the third one's a little more difficult. It's the final way was called manumission. And it's not man on a mission. It's called manumission, which normally was in favour of the master rather than the slave, in which the slave could be freed if the master saw fit, but often was never fully free as they would still require them to work a few days a month for them, for nothing. Uh, a master would maybe send a slave free if the slave became sick. And he says, long term sick, and rather than looking after the slave, as was some would do it, they would just get rid of them and put them out, leaving them with their own devices. So that's called manumission. 
In the first century, slaves worked in many sectors of the economy, such as agriculture, industry, pottery, miners of gold and silver, other jobs of that of cookery, carpentry. They were bakers, and in larger homes they were accountants, teachers, physicians. If they were a Roman, they could also be slaves and put into slavery for the government and work in governmental positions. The government rulers, etc., would have them maintain and protect the imperial jewellery. They would be tailors and all duties that sustain to the prestigious life of a governor or an emperor. The treatment of the slaves is where it all changes. The treatment of the slaves depended entirely upon who the owner was. Some horrendous stories are recorded in history of the first century of abuse and torture of slaves. And it's recorded in historical writings. For instance, Emperor Augustus ordered that a slave had his legs broken because he had taken a bribe. Caligula had, uh, Caligula, sorry, had the hands of his slave cut off and hung around his neck and paraded around the dining hall with a sign in front of him saying why he was being punished for stealing a piece of silver. Other masters would line up their slaves at the dining table and eat food gorging in their mouths. And if any slave watching mouth began to do or they began to quiver or make any facial expressions whatsoever, the slave was beaten or whipped. They would do this to torment their slaves. Another master had his slaves branded with an iron and beaten and thrown in prison because they took two towels. Don't take towels, my gosh, look at that. It's unbelievable what happened to slaves. But this was not the majority. And by the third century, rights were given to slaves and people were encouraged to stop beating them or treating them unfairly. But even although this progressed and the the benefits or the rights of slavery was getting better, there was still no punishment for masters if they were abusive. Uh, one, One particular master killed a slave and there was just no punishment against the master for it. So they ended up, the masters became a law unto themselves. Now this is where the modern day question over slavery arises and the abolition of its modern day practices and the phenomenon that took place a few years ago for the abolition of slavery. The Apostle Paul and the early church, interestingly, did not seek to abolish the institution of slavery, which makes people beg the question, why? You see, our faith, Apostle Paul and the early church did not seek to abolish the institution of slavery. Our faith, our Christianity, has always been about God transforming individuals who go on to transform a society. Whereas the way of the world is to try to change society, to transform individuals. From 1 Corinthians 1.18 right through to chapter 2 verse 16 we see the comparison of the wisdom of God to the foolishness of men Paul's way is to encourage both masters and slaves to be servants first to Christ as they go about their duties 1 Corinthians seven twenty two says this for he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a free man of the Lord Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. 
the slave under Christ is a free man. Right? A free man is a slave unto Christ. A slave unto Christ is a free man. He has made them free. But a free man is also a slave unto Christ. For he's a servant of the Lord, isn't he? And then, of course, there is no partiality with God. He is no respecter of persons. He didn't, like we've saw this before, he didn't look down and say, do you know what? I like you, so you're getting saved. And then turn the corner, I don't like your face, so you're not getting saved, right? It wasn't based on your looks. It wasn't based on your any goodness within you. It was based on his will. There's no partiality with God. So both masters and the slave are now seen as equal brothers in Christ. They're not individual, they're equal in Christ. In Galatians 3.28, he says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 6.2 says this, Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And in Philemon 16, no longer is a bondservant or slave, but more than a slave as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Uh, I did a commentary, I wrote a commentary on, on the book of Philemon. And uh, it took me a lot of, a lot of hours. And uh, I never, never undertook such a thing before to write, try and write a commentary in a verse-by-verse exposition. And... Um, I think it took over 80 hours to complete it and it's only like something like 20 odd verses. It's only one chapter of the Bible. It's just a wee book. But the whole story is the beautiful story of Onesimus or as we call him in kids' church, Onesimus. We all get dressed in onesies, remember? And it's... Uh, <laughs> or onesies, but it's Onesimus. And Onesimus was a slave to Philemon's household. He was a servant of Philemon. Now it's believed and some commentators would write, well, he ran away from the household. And it's believed that he ran away because he stole something or did something like that. But there's no actual verse that says that he stole anything. So it's kind of conjecture a bit on that. But he did something wrong against his master. And then, well, the first thing is he ran away. right? So he'd run away. He got to Rome and he met. Paul was under house arrest and he got, for some reason, the Lord opened up doors that he got to meet Paul. Onesimus was not a Christian, but he met Paul became a brother in the Lord and got saved, became a Christian. He became a tremendous help to Paul, the apostle, when he was in prison. Paul knew Philemon because Philemon's household was a Christian household. There was a church, you could say, in Philemon's household. Philemon's household was used for passing missionaries would pass through and stay there and were refreshed there. Paul was one of them had previously, he knew Philemon. And he writes this letter saying, okay, you're with me now, Onesimus. You've worked with me, but I have to send you back to your owner because it's not right that you be here. I have to send you back, but I'm going to send this letter. And he writes a letter, and that's what Philemon is. It's the letter written to Philemon by Paul to say, look, Onesimus, for whatever he's done wrong to you, he has become a beloved brother now. And so now that we are one, would you 
basically take him back. Would you forgive him even better still? Paul says, would you send him back to me? Forgive his debt, put it on my account. That's a wonderful image of slavery being turned to see the picture of a, a man who was enslaved becoming a free man and becoming the same in the eyes of God to his master. They were seen as one in Christ. So why does Paul not address the abolition of slavery? Well, it's believed that on many fronts that he was more concerned with the bigger picture at that time, which was the picture of eternity. He taught that the suffering in this life was nothing compared to the eternal joy that we would receive upon death in Christ. Romans 8, if you turn with me, we're going to look at this passage as we try to answer this difficult subject of slavery and treat it with respect. But Romans chapter 8 speaks into this. Great chapter in the Bible, Moyer. Romans chapter 8 speaks into this in verses 18 to 30. And it says this, For I consider, Paul speaking here, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 20, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And verse 30, and those who were predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Paul speaks into this subject by pointing his message always was the direction towards glorification, that final state. No matter the persecution, whether it was Stephen getting stoned, whether it was... Anyone getting beaten or killed as most of the apostles and disciples were, it was a matter of him speaking about the, not this present life and the punishment and the suffering we have, but in the life to come was our hope, yeah. the future hope. Then we come later in the book of Romans to chapter 13, where Paul encourages and indeed advocates for obedience to the government. 
To then come along and propose the abolition of slavery would have been to oppose and defy the government at that time. It is also very probable that he had proposed this, if he had proposed this to the, at this time, then many slaves would have risen up and become converted to Christianity, even though they weren't really Christians. They would have wanted to join in Paul's crusade to fight the government and stand up against this. And this is not the message Paul portrayed. Christianity does not promise a freedom from our present circumstances. I'm sorry if I dropped that bombshell on you. Christianity is not going to free you from your present circumstances. If you're in debt and you're not a Christian and you got saved tonight, when you wake up tomorrow, I'm sorry to tell you you're still in debt. It didn't mean the moment you became a Christian, suddenly all your debt disappeared. It does not promise a freedom from our circumstances, but it gives us the power of Jesus Christ to endure them to the end. And although Paul does not specifically push for the abolition of slavery, he does tell us not to become slaves. 1 Corinthians 7.23 says this, You were bought with a price, the blood of Jesus. Do not become slaves of men. Where true fear for safety and trembling were the norm for slaves, they lived in fear, physical fear of being abused or being beaten or being, you know, locked up. Here Paul is referencing that fear and trembling now to be in awe of Christ. That fear and respect. The fear of God is the, is the beginning of wisdom. We look at the fear of God as some people look at it as a something where we tremble and literally physically tremble in fear as if we're cowering a corner away from, away from God. I'm pretty sure we couldn't bear the image of God should God appear himself to us right now. But the very glory of God, we couldn't look at him face to face. Moses couldn't even look at the back of him without being blinded. But the very fear of God literally means to have awe and reverence for God. That's the understanding of the fear of God. It is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of awe and respect for God and awe and reverence. It's the beginning of this process in our minds to walk towards and become like a holy God. A heart. Those who serve a master should do their serving unto the Lord with respect. As the heart is the centre of a person so must their whole heart be involved in their serving. So as slaves or as bond servants in a household, this is the message Paul's saying. He's saying as the heart is the centre of a person, so must their whole heart be involved in their serving. Here's why. He's saying, it's not by way, verse 6, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Their service was not to be that of just eye service, or we should say lip service. Some translate eye service to mean a couple of things, and we could take it a couple of ways. It's not exact translation, but it could be, yeah, the master speaking to you, and you're nodding in agreement like you're going to do it, and you don't do it. So it's eye service. But it's more, it could also be translated more probable that eye service in this passage actually speaks of 
them only performing when their master was around and doing those duties the master's around. He can see me doing this. I'm sweeping. I'm cleaning. I'm making this. I'm building this. I'm doing that. And when the master left behind then all the jobs that were unseen and they piled up. So they're only interested in that which could be seen by the eye. Or we could see something like, you know, they, were, they are not somebody doing enough through eye service or lip service just in words only. Yep, 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 yep. I get you. I'll do that. You know, as so often I know that our children are good at doing that in some ways, you know. Yep, yep, I'll clean my room. I'll clean that room. Yep, absolutely. Three days later. Have you cleaned your room yet? Yep, yep, yep. I'm going to do it today. I'm going to do it today. Uh-huh. It's just lip service. Well, they were not to do it like that. Just doing it to please their masters. Often we do things in the light of that which is seen by those who matter. And we leave the work behind that they cannot see. But Paul wants to not just do visible works, but do it from the heart unto the Lord when we're serving. That's difficult, when we, especially if we've got something to do that we don't want to do, or something to do that we don't like doing, but we have to do it unto the Lord. And he goes on in verse 7 to say that we're to render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So everything birthed from a place of love and consideration, the calling to work, etc is a good thing it's pleasing in the sight of the lord when we work do we work in our jobs in obedience rendering everything we do as if we're doing every part of it unto the lord think about that when you go to your work what i hate my job i don't like this i like that now i'm i'm blessed with at the age of 50 years old, been in a job that I absolutely love. I love the sport I work in. I love seeing people nurtured and develop in their talent. I haven't seen my own athletes for nearly three months in person because I'd injured my foot. And, I've been, and I haven't seen them today. I got the joy of going to a competition all day. Sitting in the sun, that's probably why I'm a bit sunburnt, I think. And I just didn't care. I got to see them all day. It was a joyous occasion. It was all like, oh, we were all, the whole club was just wonderful seeing them all competing in a big competition. And it was a joyous day because we literally won the league today. And it was a fantastic day. And I see them develop. I had seen the plans that I had typed up and written them for the year. They were doing a lot of it themselves with the help of another coach who's been really great, this other coach is stepping up and using the plan and just working them through it. And I saw the difference in them today. I saw some of them jump better than they've jumped. Their posture was better. Their, their way they ran was better. Their attitude was great. Things had been working well. And sometimes we come, so I'm in a job that I'm blessed. That it's a God-given job that I get to do that, to nurture and teach in my workplace. And then on the side, shall we say, it's a backhander, unpaid backhander. I get to do the same at night and a Sunday night. I get to come and do something else that I love to do. But not everyone's jobs are like that. I'm pretty sure. Now, some of you are retired and some of you are not. Some of you are going through maybe tough times at work or whatever. But are we doing all things? Rendering everything we do, every action we do as unto the Lord. From the place of the heart, which is our center. Maybe the workplace would have less animosity and resentment if we approached it this way. 
Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bond servant or free. You cannot outdo God in goodness. It's impossible. Because the most costly goodness was Christ given to us as a sacrifice. So we could never outdo him, number one, in goodness. But even more so, he continually does good in our lives. For anything you do unto him is rewarded in the eternal sacrifice given through Christ for your salvation. This serving with love, respect, and unto the Lord is not limited to the slaves, but to the free. It's for all people to obey. The goodness we give to people is physical. The goodness we give in our job is a physical thing. Possibly it's an emotional thing. You do things good, some people get tearful when you do something really well and it really touches them and it's like, thanks for doing that. Or mindful, but the reward that we receive is eternal for the goodness that he gives. It's spiritual. It affects then our emotions outwardly. It affects our soulfulness, our mindfulness. And oftentimes comes through in a physical way. So he says, masters in verse 9, do the same to your servants, as you're asking them to be done unto you. Paul now speaks to the masters and reminds them to do exactly the same. They are to walk with their servants, treating them fairly and with love and respect as unto the Lord. And he says, I love this, and stop your threatening. I just love that. That's like somebody coming up, you know, in Glasgow and just saying, stop it. Gone, you know, do that. Stop your threatening. Most likely the common practice among many masters was to be abusive and threaten their servants with punishments. That if they didn't work properly, they'd be sold or they'd be beaten or they'd be this or that or put in prison. Paul says, basically says, stop this practice immediately. This is not demonstrating Christ. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, he says. They must be respectful as fellow brothers in Christ now and would do well to remember that both the servants and their own master, they are sitting under the true master, the Lord God Almighty now. Therefore behave as such. And he says, and there was no partiality with them. Onesimus, the slave who ran away, experienced that there's no partiality. He experienced that he's now one with Philemon, with Paul, with Tychius, with the believers whom he was serving when he worked in, he's now in, in Philemon's house. He's now at one. He's now a brother. He's been given a place. Paul felt that was right to explain that to him. And we must think of slavery in that manner now that Paul is calling for a new way. And even in suffering, we see Christ. Even in suffering, we look to hope of eternity. He sees no difference between Onesimus, Philemon, or himself. For all are now what? Free under Christ. There is no partiality in the kingdom of God. Some people like to think there is. Some people may stand from lofty positions and declare that they are the higher of God, they are the higher person of God and that we must all bow down and listen to them and all this kind of stuff. And what a load of hogwash. For we are all equal under Christ. 
we are no longer to. And I love that passage where he talks, where he's that verse where he says, you know, you are purchased with a price. So don't become a slave. It's so very, the Bible is so very simple in points. Don't put yourself in places where you don't need to be, where Christ does not want you to be in the first place. Don't look at the Bible times of slavery as continuing to this day. They don't. So we have a new way, which is wonderful. We don't have slavery. I'm sure there's still practices that go on, but it's a lot less than it ever was at any point in the history of this world. And the practice is normally exposed, is ended very quickly. But we have become, and we can learn the lesson of being submitted husbands to wives, husbands and wives, children and parents, masters and servants, because it honours Christ if we submit to him. You can do, this might bring a bit more image to the verse, but it says, you can do all things through Christ who gives you the strength. Where you struggle with submission, you can do it. Where you struggle with authority figures, you can do it. Where you struggle to go to work, you can do it. Where you struggle to deal with torment and persecution, you can do it. Where you struggle to lift your head in the morning because you can't see the way out of your situation, you can do all things. Why? Because he has given you Christ who is your strength, who is your peace, who is your eternal hope. And what we have in this life at the moment is but for a small fragment of time compared to eternity with him. Father, I thank you today for your word. And I thank you, Lord, you would continue as we study further in our own time as well. You would teach us, teach us even greater things, reveal to us greater things about these three elements of a household. Teach us how to be submissive to your will and submissive in the church, Lord, so that you are glorified. Submission to you as the head of the church. May your name be glorified tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.